from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by Marshall University, with more than 100 degree programs offered in four locations and online. More about the Marshall family at marshall.edu. Good evening from the Capitol Building in Charleston. I'm Suzanne Higgins. Technology and innovation and the growing responsibilities of emergency medical services. These two stories coming up in just a moment. But first, senior reporter Dave Mistich joins me for an update on what captured Senate floor debate this morning. Dave, good to see you here. Yeah. We're talking about Senate Joint Resolution 7, preserving the separation of powers amendment. Tell us what happened. That's right, so this amendment, uh, as you've stated, Senate Joint Resolution 7, uh, would have added one line to the state constitution, and I'll read that to you really quickly. It would have said, the courts of the state have no authority by mandamus, prohibition, contempt, or otherwise to interfere with the proceedings of either house or legislature. Of course, this all stems back to the impeachment in 2018 uh, in a decision that was handed down in Workman v. Carmichael and that decision basically said that the um, that the House of Delegates uh, impeached the incorrectly impeached the state Supreme Court justices for uh, all this lavish spending and Republicans have taken issue with that decision we'll hear right now from Senator Charlie Trump he's the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee explaining this resolution in the history of the Republic as far as anyone has ever been able to determine, has the judiciary in any state or for the federal government taken the extraordinary step of invading the exclusive authority of the legislative branch of the government to conduct impeachment proceedings? What the court did in this case, the temporarily assigned court in Workman v. Carmichael, is absolutely without precedent and without any foundation of legal opinion or basis. Dave, a lot of lingering bad feelings between the parties. That's right. And when these impeachments went down, Democrats called it a coup. Uh, of course, if you remember the, the makeup of parties of these justices, they're now nonpartisan. But at the time, that played some role in the feelings that were left. Um, you know, but Democrats, they basically argue that, that, this, uh, that this resolution would be overstepping its reach in readjusting uh, this, this separation of powers. Uh, you know, Senator Mike Romano, a Democrat from Harrison County, he also argued that, you know, the constitutional amendments are thrown out all the time, that we do this too infrequently. We'll hear from him right here. I believe the Constitution is sacred. I believe the judiciary has to have a free hand to decide whether or not there's a particular case it's going to hear or not hear. And I think they've done a great job for the past 200 plus years for our country and the past, you know, 100, almost 200 years for our state. And uh, I think we, we drop constitutional amendments a little too freely in this legislature. The, the Constitution is a, an instrument that has been tried over the, the decades and the centuries, and, and we shouldn't try to interfere with it because of one particular case. 
And of course, Suzanne, the, the vote, uh, very partisan. 20 Republicans, 13 Democrats, one absent vote. That was Senator uh, Bob Plymouth, a Democrat, who told me that he would have voted uh, against this resolution. So there's no going to be no change, uh, you know, to the Constitution, or it could be no change to the Constitution uh, as it would result from this particular uh, resolution. So. All right. And awesome. if you need to know more, we've got a full story on wvpublic.org, of course. Very good. Good reminder. Also this morning, West Virginia's uh, State Superintendent of Schools, Steve Payne, announced his retirement no later than June 30th. Uh, in a statement, he said he was leaving to care for a sick family member and to spend more time with his family. Now, we know that lawmakers have been critical of Payne's tenure, um, citing West Virginia students' poor test scores on those national tests. Here's Dave Perry. State Board of Education president now looking for Payne's replacement. Hopefully it will be very expeditious and when we hired Dr. Payne three years ago we followed a kind of an in-house process meaning we didn't use an outside agency to screen applicants and so forth. We'd hope to use that process and it would involve posting the job, interviews and of course naming someone. But if that weren't completed by June the 29th then we would we would appoint an acting are not acting a superintendent. It was Innovation and Technology Day here at the Capitol, and organizers believe developing the small can net big results. Randy Yoey reports. The Bipartisan Tech Caucus welcomes some guidance from entrepreneurial visionary John Chambers. Speaking live via teleconference, the West Virginia native and former Cisco CEO is now giving his time, talent, and some of his treasures to WVU's renamed John Chambers College of Business and Economics. Chambers says to grow, we must embrace change in West Virginia's economic makeup. You have to have the courage to dream what's possible and imagine the American dream, the West Virginia dream, coming true. You look at what's going on in the, in, uh, in the gorge with small business, those are equally entrepreneurial, those efforts. And we need to make sure that we're supporting those individuals in every part of the state. Among the small town businesses on display at the Capitol, Philippines Extreme Endeavors. In 20 years, the company that automates rural water plants has grown, then stabilized, and gained 400 clients. The company president says making it easier to do business will grow business. I now have moved out of any big cities in my business to avoid all the complications of B&O tax. You know, so just stuff like that, anything you can do to make it easier for the businesses, they hire more people, you get more revenue exchanged, and it runs a lot cleaner. The certified minority-owned business, the Gaddis Group, provides IT service and solutions. With five employees and a growing client base, the Morgantown CEO says promoting small businesses like the state promotes tourism will reap rewards. Letting them know that we're here and we're West Virginia companies, then using those companies that are here to bring in other companies that are likewise. Small entrepreneurs here in West Virginia say, remember, even Apple started in a garage. I'm Randy Yoey for the Legislature Today. Next, to focus on emergency medical services in advance of EMS Day here at the Capitol tomorrow. We begin with a visit to Princeton Rescue Squad and their quick response team to learn just what it means to be on the front line of the drug epidemic. I think the biggest misconception with not only Princeton Rescue, but all EMS, a, a lot of times the community just looks at us as, as ambulance drivers. 
CEO Stacy Hicks oversees a crew of more than 80 employees at the Princeton Rescue Squad. I've seen it many, many times where our, our guys go out and the patient be dead. And our guys revive them, bring them back. Uh, we've had people walk back in the door here and thank us uh, that, that we're clinically dead. First responders here answer a mind-boggling 16,000 calls a year. Matthew Snuffer is a paramedic. Everything we have back here is basically like a ER on wheels. A lot of the equipment that you see in the ER, we have here. We have uh, heart monitors, intubation kits, IO, IVs, all kinds of drugs. Um, in a cardiac arrest situation, anything that an ER doc can do, we can do back here. Along with patient transports come those cardiac arrests, car wrecks, poisonings, domestic violence injuries, including gunshot wounds and stabbings. And with Mercer County one of the hardest hit by the drug epidemic, daily calls on overdoses, often dangerous situations for these unarmed first responders, pushing the innate pressures of medical emergencies to a higher level. It is. It's very stressful. Sometimes you'll go into a scene and everything will turn out okay. Um, other times you go in there and you'll have to have law enforcement go in with you because the scene may have potential to become dangerous really fast. On this day, as on many, Snuffer is partnered with EMT Brittany Mullins. We both have a job to do and we both know what we're doing. So with your, when you're with a really good medic and they know what you are capable of, you do what you can, they do what they can. They don't have to check over your shoulder every time. You know what you're doing and they trust you. Both agree the drug epidemic has gotten worse and overdose calls are among the toughest. When we respond to one of those scenes, first thing that comes to my mind is what did they take? What's in their system? What can we do to reverse it? Is the patient breathing? Uh, what's their skin color look like? Are they blue, are they pale, you know, are they diaphoretic? Uh, are they responsive to pain or other stimuli? Like, am I able to just holler at them and say, hey, buddy, are you okay? And they look at me. New product is moving in every day, and they're getting more and more secretive about it. And that makes it harder to get a handle on it. About half of the drug-related calls in Princeton are opioid overdoses. Almost the other half, meth. Naloxone can revive someone from an opioid overdose. Sometimes several doses are needed. For a meth overdose, there is no antidote, so those patients must quickly get to the hospital for life-saving treatment. To think that, you know, every day on any call, you know, someone's life is in your hands. That's a, a lot of responsibility for anybody. You can do everything perfect by the book and, and everything uh, as far as procedures and treatment, and you can do it all right. But then by the time you get to the hospital, it still went wrong. Um, you got to come to terms with that, that you're not going to be able to save everybody. When the patient's outcome is not positive, first responders call that a bad call. And those are hard to shake. We get done on a bad call, well, you got another call waiting for you. You can't take your time to grieve on that bad call. You have to get up and do the next call. So you push it to the side and you deal with it at another time. And that's why the Princeton Rescue Squad employs part-time a chaplain, Daniel Gano, who offers counseling to first responders. I have made no um, 
bones about this. Uh, these young people see things that I don't believe the good Lord ever intended man to see. Gano will often meet with responders on the covered veranda behind the administrative building and garages, built especially for reflection and quiet time between emergency calls. The need is, is there just for somebody to be able to, to know that I can come and talk to you and you're not going to criticize me, you're not going to be hard on me, you're going to try to help me get them a problem. Snuffer says he sees the increasing, lasting impact of the drug epidemic on his community. It's gone well beyond addiction. Um, you got second and third generation families that are having children being raised by the grandparents. Uh, not only that, you have you know, the bloodborne diseases, hepatitis C, um, AIDS, HIV, um, and we're not immune to that around here. We see it every day. For Mullins, her work is personal, and she shares her story willingly. Well, I used to be part of that epidemic. Um, I was a drug addict for over 10 years. I know a lot of what that life is like. Mullins brings that understanding of her own journey from addiction to recovery to all her calls and the community at large. People just need to realize, look, everybody deserves a second chance. Granted, sometimes people blow up that second chance. Sometimes it takes five or six always have hope. The Princeton Rescue Squad sponsors a quick response team comprised of additional members from law enforcement, the recovery community, and mental health experts. And the heroin's being laced with fentanyl. That was going to be my next question. Were they the team follows up with the patient within 72 hours of the overdose, going to the home together to discuss all local treatment options. Jamie Steins is director of crisis services for Southern Highlands Community Mental Health Center in Princeton. On average, these individuals will overdose five times, and it depends on what substance they use. They may or may not be revived after so many of these times. And if we can get out boots on the ground, get these individuals in treatment, we can stop this cycle of self-medicating and get them on a proper path for recovery. QRT members say the information about treatment and recovery is getting out. Stigma is diminishing, and they're seeing more people accept help. I also work, work hand in hand with parole, and a lot of the people that we meet are usually on parole or probation, and then they need treatment. So I get to watch, meet them at the door, take them to parole, get them in treatment, and then see them a few months down the road. Like, it's, it's really cool to watch. And their lives are totally different. They're gaining weight. They look better. Their people are starting to answer the phone again, tell them they love them. And you can start to see a little freedom in their life, and it's a, it's a cool thing to watch. CEO Stacy Hicks says his community has a long way to go before being healthy again. But his team is in it for the long run. I can speak for myself is uh, I lost a nephew. Uh, he went to buy drugs and uh, cashed his income tax return check and the guy robbed him and shot him and killed him. And, uh, you know, uh, I watched my brother suffer from that loss. I don't want to see anybody else die from, from drugs. And uh, so it, it is a big part of what we do and, and why we believe what we believe, that, that we're going to try to save everybody that we can and we're going to give them an option that uh, after we save them to, to change their life.
Joining us now are Captain David J. Weller, Chair of West Virginia's EMS Advisory Council. Captain Weller is also Director of the Martinsburg Fire Department. Also here, Dr. Er, Mr. Paul Seaman, also a member of the West Virginia EMS Advisory Council and Director of Operations of JanCare Ambulance Service. Thank you both for being here this Thank evening. Um, Captain Weller, let's begin with you. Just a, a brief follow-up. The, the, the changing nature of the EMS professional and, and uh, in this era of the opioid epidemic. Uh, significant changes, obviously, uh, for EMS. The, response is different and one of the, the struggles that we're facing right now is it's different in different areas of the state. Um, you know, I'm from the Eastern Panhandle. I have a very different problem than Paul has in the southern part of the state. Uh, I'm at a major interstate intersection of Baltimore and, and Washington, D.C. Um, I'm experiencing a little bit different drugs. Um, we're seeing some things that, that the rest of the state maybe is not seeing at this point. Uh, but they're seeing a little higher volume of overdoses than, than we're seeing. So we're, we're not, it, it's very difficult to attack this from a statewide perspective because it's so individualized in different areas. Uh, Mr. Seaman, the, um, the impact of those QRTs, the quick response team, I believe West Virginia now has 22. Right. Um, uh, the impact of, of, of getting people into recovery. I think it's important and I think EMS plays a critical role because one of the things that's unique about EMS is that we're in the communities. Most of the people that man the ambulances are also in those communities. So we're in 35 different towns and cities, some unincorporated throughout the state. So when they are responding, they're responding to people, a lot of times they know. Perhaps they went to school with them. Perhaps it's their you know, family or their, their uh, you know, someone that they saw, the sports star that is now uh, taking on hard times. And there's a lot of impact, a lot of, of you know, issue with them trying to get past that because in EMS, we really want to go respond, help someone, see them get that immediate recovery or at least that we did everything we can. And this is a difficult one because a lot of times you got to respond a lot of times, as they mentioned, to, to see an impact. So we're there to always give them that second and third chance, but uh, it is, has a major impact uh, emotionally and, and uh, resource-wise on EMS. Uh, Captain Weller, let's talk about those mental health challenges and how that impacts um, first responders. Uh, what are the what is in place? How how do you recognize it? And and what what services are there? We saw uh, in Princeton Rescue Squad they have a chaplain on staff. Uh, more in in terms of statewide, how is that dealt with? This is one of the the directives that legislature has given the advisory council this year to to really dig into and try to come back with a, a proposal. Um, most agencies have um, a, a chaplain or someone of that nature that will sit down and talk. Uh, Senator Unger has been uh, very instrumental in working with the Office of EMS and the Advisory Council uh, to develop a program very similar to the, the Peer Coach program, um, but it would be specific for fire and EMS. Mm -hmm. um, maybe those fire and EMS individuals would be more open to just be able to have a discussion with someone that's in their field that understands exactly what they went through on that particular call or over the past several weeks or months, whatever that may be. Um, that program, like I said, we're in, it's in its infancy right now, uh, but we have a very strong committee that's, that's getting that thing moving, and I think that will be a huge impact uh, and a huge resource for our EMS providers. 
Mr. Seaman, an another challenge is compassion fatigue. Sure. I know that we've talked to um, Huntington Fire Department uh, personnel, the those first responders, and and there is they acknowledge Absolutely. that's a, it, how does it happen and how do you deal with it? You know. We believe that probably up to 30 or 40 percent of our employees uh, know someone in the throes of addiction uh, in their personal life. And when they come to work, they're already dealing with that. And then they're trying to find solutions for that. And then during their day, you know, we're given the locks and, you know, twice a day somewhere in the state. And, um, you know, it, it's just this ongoing impact. So I think that the way we want to get through this is EMS just wants to be part of a solution. This is a difficult problem. We want to be part of that. You know, we deal with things like CPR and trauma, but we know that for a set number of those people, we can make a difference. And I think that that's part of how we want to, to get the opioid crisis and the meth crisis now under wraps is that we would have a defined way that this is our role. This is what success looks like. Um, it won't be everyone, but we can reach out, work with behavioral health uh, agencies in the area, and we want to be part of that solution. And we want to kind of lay that out for people. I think that would be very helpful because right now there's kind of a um, idea that what are we doing? We're going back to the same house over and over, mm -hmm. and uh, we want to try to break people out of that cycle. Uh, you know, we always say we want people cured of this addiction uh, almost more than they do sometimes. We just want to keep giving them the opportunity until they reach that point where, where they feel that they've, they've reached a situation where they do want that help, and we want to be able to help provide that. Mm -hmm. Captain Weller, what are the funding issues that you are bringing to the attention of lawmakers? Funding issues are, are paramount for uh, the advisory council. We've worked with the legislature. Um, we continue to do so. Uh, there's just a lot of misunderstanding on how EMS is actually funded. Other states around us have funding sources in place to support EMS. Uh, West Virginia does not have a funding source. Um, we do not itemize bill because we're not allowed to. Uh, so when we go out on, on a typical call, an, an overdose, for example, in this case, um, the cost that we're incurring uh, usually is much more than what we could ever get reimbursed for. Uh, so obviously that's not good business in, in any aspect. Uh, so we're working with uh, a Medicaid reimbursement. Correct. Mm -hmm. So we're working with, uh, with legislature to try to develop, there was a fund that was developed that doesn't have any funding source to it um, to work with training and, and support of the EMS system. Uh, so there are several uh, bills that are out there now that we're going to be working with legislature to try to get through to develop some type of funding source uh, to help support that particular uh, fund. All right, and th there are other bills that um, that are related to EMS, EMS work. Um, Mr. Seaman, let's talk about the, the um, elimination or reduced tolls for first responders. Tell us about that. Sure. So what typically happens is there is no uh, billing, as, as he said, as far as individual costs per, per call. So if you're from the southern part of the state or you're needing to travel through the southern part of the state, and those tolls are not reimbursed. That's not something that could be passed on or billed. And, you know, it would be 20 to $30 uh, for emergency vehicles to go through that. And so we're just trying to look for ways to reduce that uh, with some of the things that the uh, governor has done for citizens, uh, for the fire departments, EMS, and those that go through those tolls uh, on a frequent basis. 
Another uh, bill that you're trying to support, trying to see through this session, would provide equitable state income taxation of EMS retirement system pensions. Tell us about that. Yeah, so retirement, um, obviously, over the past few years, there's been uh, a lot of discussion on the retirement for EMS. Um, there has to be a funding source, you know, as we talk about with everything. Um, right now, we have a lot of volunteers that our state is supported primarily on volunteer systems, and it's getting more and more difficult. Um, that retirement system to a volunteer is, is paramount. They need to have that uh, to be able to continue to provide the service that they're providing. So um, again, that's something that, that we have worked with over the last three or four years uh, to try to really ensure that that system is there and that we can continue to enhance it year after year. All right, and, and Mr. Seaman, uh, tell us about the, the replica, replica program and why we need to adopt that. Sure, so um, many states, I believe 17 or 18 now, are part of replica. It's an interstate compact. So when the scouts come to Southern West Virginia and uh, 50, 60,000 of them are there, uh, it allows an opportunity for people to cross state lines temporarily and operate on their paramedic license from other states. If there is a mass casualty situation, God forbid, we would be able, again, on a temporary basis to utilize uh, resources from outside the state. And then likewise, a lot of agencies in the state uh, go for hurricane relief with FEMA and things like that. And so it allows the, the standardization of some of this, um, what a paramedic can do in these different states. So RNs have that program and uh, we're just asking for that for EMS. It's, it has a lot of support and we're hoping to get that through and we'll just join those other states as each one comes in and, and allows a better transition of care across state lines. Okay, and, and Captain Weller, I'm gonna give you the last word and very briefly, um, are, are lawmakers hearing you when, you when you are asking for these bills? What, what is your message to them this week? I cannot say enough for uh, this legislature. They have been very interactive with the advisory council more so than ever before uh, over the past two to three years and they continue to stay engaged. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much. Captain David Weller, chair of the West Virginia EMS Advisory Council and member, Mr. Paul Seaman. Thank you both for joining us thank tonight. This concludes tonight's broadcast from the Capitol Building. I'm Suzanne Higgins for everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Thanks for watching, have a good evening. Thank you.